on the TV show Saturday Night Live, the actress Christine plays Penelope, a character who acts like a narcissistic, uh, a narcissist, or on steroids. For an example, when Penelope is invited to a party, she casually lets it slip that she's been invited to lots of parties. She's also familiar with lots of other parties. When another guest mentions they known the hostess for six months, Penelope interjects that since she's known her for seven years, she's probably better friends with the hostess than that other guest. This is getting ridiculous already. When a guest compliments the home, Penelope empathetically announces that it is her favorite house ever. And while others try to control their temper around Penelope's outlandish claims, inevitably someone will come completely unglued and blow a gasket. In one skit, one of these new acquaintances explodes. Hey, Penelope, guess what? I have a cousin who lives in space and recently lost 500 pounds, and you know what? My wife and I got her by paddling a, 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 a kayak down the street, and two minutes after my baby was born, she spoke French. Without missing a beat, totally emotionally unaware, unaware Penelope coolly replies, all I have to say is, I have 60 cousins who live in space. In other dimensions, um, uh, and I just lost 700 pounds, and um, I invented kayaks and invented the street. So um, I have six babies now who spoke 44 languages before they came out of my stomach and uh, uh, I can fly. So it's all self-centered, isn't it? The way a narcissist and abusers find a way to make everything about them while others get pushed to the side. They really love to push abused, poor, marginalized people to the side. Narcissists are about proclaiming themselves. But the world, friends, the world is not just in danger from narcissistic people, from narcissistic churches. Churches who are self-centered. Organizations like people are also motivated to protect their collective sense of identity and legitimacy, and like people can also sometimes engage in extreme narcissistic behavior. Churches that are about proclaiming themselves, all they talk about is what they are doing for the kingdom, always trying to outdo other churches. Everything is centered around their brand. They are not focused on you coming to Christ, but to them. I like the way that one writer put it, Scott Jethany, in his book, What If Jesus Was Serious About the Church, says this about American churches. Corporations are financially and legally compelled by self-interest. Success is measured by the growth of the institution itself not how it benefits its community or even its industry. Starbucks doesn't just want you to drink coffee. Starbucks wants you to drink their coffee. If that hurt, just keep, just keep, keep looking at me. 
I ain't mean to step on the Starbucks toe this morning. <laughs> Churches have become inward focused and brand building. We don't just want you to come to Jesus, but we want you to sit in our services. Because after all, people equal dollars. They can't work with any other churches because they don't want them stealing their members or, staring, or sharing the stage or sharing the credit. A lot of churches are starting to chase after more money, more power, more control to build their own empire. And these churches are raising up narcissistic people. They preach messages that focus on self and feed people ego and consumer mentality. Unfortunately, most of us in church don't plan on being the church. We pay professionals to do that. We don't want a fellowship. We don't want to give our life, and we don't want to share our faith. And if you ask us to do something, we go to a church that doesn't ask us to do anything. If you can't say amen, say ouch. Maybe a hard one this morning. We are increasingly wanting less of Jesus and less cross in the church. Narcissistic churches push the poor and the marginalized to the side, and they preach an all-about-me rather than an all-about-him. More of us, less of him. Well, the question is upon us now. How do we avoid becoming narcissistic church. How does Flourish Church avoid this? I believe we avoid being a narcissistic church by proclaiming Christ through love and service. And one of the practical evidences that Jesus is centered in a church is not just what we preach, but if we live what we preach. Okay, let me say that again. We don't just get to claim that Jesus is at the center. We don't just get to claim that we are all about him without the evidence of being practically in line with the scriptures. Can I tell y'all a story about a narcissistic church back in the biblical days? Once upon a time, long, long, long ago, no, really, I'm messing around. Can I tell y'all about a story in the Bible about a church who was narcissistic to the core? If there was one church that struggled with narcissism, it was the church of Corinth. When I say, when I say church, I, I, mean, I, I mean the whole church. It was, it was a collective narcissism going on. One text today in 2 Corinthians 4, the church of Corinth was, cra- was a crazy church of the New Testament. Paul says a few nice things in his first letter to them, but most of the letter is a rebuke of their narcissism. They were so worldly, loved celebrity preachers, they messed up the Lord's Supper, they used spiritual gifts for their own glory, they messed up marriage, sex, and a host of other categories. If you're trying to find a messed up church, go over to 1 Corinthians. How do you mess up the Lord's Supper? 
I mean, like, how do you mess that up? And when you read around that passage where Paul talks about the messing up the Lord's Supper, the rich is getting there and eating before the poor gets there and can care less about whether the poor ate or not. And there's something, and we're going to have to do a study on the Lord's Supper because there's something about an attachment to how we treat the body to the Lord's Supper. And then how you mess up spiritual gifts? They use the gifts to elevate themselves. And these gifts that God had given them, they say, hey, yo, I'm going to use these gifts to get clout. I'm going to use these gifts to climb the ladder. Does it sound familiar to today's churches? Why do you think Paul wrote chapter 13 in 1 Corinthians? He didn't write the love chapter for no reason. There was a reason he wrote this love chapter. Because these folks didn't know how to love each other. And so we read it, we put it in the Hallmark cards and all these things, and we don't necessarily understand the context in which, in, in which this was written. This is why Paul says, hey, you who are messing up the Lord's Supper, hey, you who are, who, who are messing up the Lord's gifts that he's giving you, love is patient in its kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. Some of y'all are like, oh, man, you're messing me up already, man. I just got to church. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. He didn't write this because he just wanted to give a random definition of love. He was dealing with a narcissistic church. But in the second letter, Paul makes this huge anti-narcissist statement about his ministry, and I love it. Now watch this. And I believe it should be the glory of every church, the goal of every church, an individual believer. He says this. Now watch it now, because I want it to land on you the way that it needs to land on you. And I don't want you to rush past this. Let it hit you. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Oh, that's good. Mm. That'll preach all by itself. I better play that back one more time. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants. For Jesus' sake. Okay, come on, Paul. Preach to us this morning now. You see, Paul was an anti-narcissist and, 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 and disciple churches to be the same. Churches should exist to proclaim Jesus and serve people both inside and outside the church. Churches should exist to proclaim Jesus and serve people both in and outside of the church. Now, this is easier said than done. It really is. Like these ideas that I'm throwing out to you, they're so easy to hear. They're so hard to live out. They're easy to hear. And every time we sit under the word of God, this is why we should be praying, because it's so easy to hear, 
It is another thing to leave this place and then go live it out. You see, Paul pushed the church. He says, we are servants for the sake of Christ. Here's the bigger section that I read earlier. And we all with unveiled face, behold the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercies of God, we do not lose what? Heart. But we have renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone conscious in the sight of God. Even if our gospel is veiled, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, which is Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but what? But Jesus Christ as what? With ourselves as your what? For whose sake? For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, how shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. So we overcome church narcissism by beholding God. Okay, I want you to catch it. What does it mean to behold something? What does it mean to behold something? It means to see or observe a thing, a person, especially a remarkable or impressive one. And what's more impressive than God? What is more impressive than God? Well, in the mind of a narcissist, the narcissist. But anyone who sees God will quickly forget about their own glory. No, 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 no. When you really see him, you will forget about your own glory. No, 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 no. When you really see him, I'm talking about see him, see him. You will forget about your glory because that glory is so beautiful that you see everybody needs to see this and not this. Right? When you see it, when you behold it. Paul seems to suggest in this text that the the in-depth cure for church narcissism behavior is the beholding of the glory of God. The way churches move away from being all about their brand, we can't work with other churches, detoxing from celebrity preachers, all about us rather than him, is to behold the glory of God. And there is something about beholding the glory of God that helps us to forget about self-promoting. And I believe part of that is that God satisfies all the longings that we have when we come to know God. Remember the woman at the well? Do you remember her in John chapter 4? Don't forget the woman at the well. Do you remember when she came to the well, she came there thirsty? And she came there with an item, didn't she? She came there with a bucket. 
She came there with a bucket because she planned to draw water for her thirsty body. And do you remember what happened at that well? She thought that she was going there to meet water, and she met water, but she met better water. She met living water. Okay, now I'm in your living room. Because some of you can testify right now that, 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 that there was a time when you came to church for something else and you thought you were coming for something, and God met you at church even though you didn't want to go. And you had a divine encounter with the living God and something happened to your soul. And so the woman at the well, she gets there. She's just there for water. Jesus is like, hey, yo, what's up? She's like, what's up? Thought the Savior was trying to holler at her or something. And Jesus is like, uh, you know, I got some water. That's how I like to look at it. Y'all read y'all Bible, how y'all read y'all Bible. Jesus is like, hey, I got some water. She's like, yeah, I didn't heard this pickup line before. And she's like, no, 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 for real. Like, I got, no, 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 like a honey, like, 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 like I'm keeping it in a buck with you. I got living water. And I wish I had time to go through the whole text, but we know what happened there, didn't we? What happened? That woman left that bucket, and she ran to her community, and she did what? She proclaimed him who she had ran into. What happened now? Let's go back to what I've been talking about. She beheld his glory. She was so satisfied that she forgot about the thirst in her own body and went to proclaim him who is able to satisfy folks. And this is my issue with narcissistic churches, is that proclaiming us, pastor ain't got nothing to offer nobody. I'm a dead end. The church brand is a dead end. If you get in the church and you never get into God, you will continually leave here empty. It is selfish for churches to proclaim anything else outside of him because we really don't have nothing to offer you but Jesus. No, like seriously, we don't. You get deep enough in any church, you'll find out that it's true. You'll just find out that it is. Churches will disappoint you. They will fail you. That's why a lot of us like to stay on the outskirts of Sunday because it's safe. And to be honest, the church got some explaining to do Ways in which we handle people. And I understand why some people don't want to move in. I'm not saying that you should stay there, but I understand. What this old theologian Augustine said was this. Our souls are restless until we find God. That they're restless, that they're running, that they're looking, that they're chasing, that they're pursuing, and they will not find rest until they find God. So, pastor, if behold is seeing, then we got a question for you. How does a church, how does a person see a God who is invisible? Well, first we need to understand that the primary reason we don't see God isn't because he's invisible, because we are spiritually blind. Our condition without Christ, look, at, look with me at 2 Corinthians 4, 
In verse 4, he says this, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. People who don't believe in Christ are blind. Satan blinds us. He does. He blinds us in all kinds of ways. He blinds us with money, with power and control. Satan runs a narcissistic kingdom. He failed because because he had an intense need for affirmation and validation and attention. And he wants to produce narcissistic churches and people. Satan blinds the entire world by lying and tricking us that seeking our own glory and self-preservation leads to life. You got to look out for you. You got to get rich or die trying. That's 50 cent for some of y'all who don't know who that is. That's all good. The reality is we, if we're honest, if we're open, if we're not faking, the reality is we were once all in that category. Right? We were once all in that category. Right? And some of us still struggle with not being in that category. Right? Some of us, we think about what we did yesterday and say, yep, that's me. Right? And Satan works very hard to blind the world. And because we were blinded, it could not see the Savior, we were headed to destruction. We were headed we were on our way. Yeah. There's a song. I'm on a highway. Never mind. I better not go there. I better not go. But y'all get the point now. I ain't even had to say it. That's on y'all. Y'all know what I was going to say. If you thought that, that's on you. <clears throat> we're headed. We were headed to destruction. See how I did that? Thing? Just left them out there. Mm-hmm. I won't get an email now. If they do, I would say, I ain't say that. Go back and look at the tape. Come on. We were headed to destruction, Christian. We were headed. We were blind. We were headed to destruction. But God. Mm. I should just sit down right now, Adam. But then my sermon be too short. He said, that's all right. But God. But God opened our eyes. Now, how did he do it? He opened our eyes. He let us behold his glory so that something changed. Our value system switched. What we proclaimed switched. Something happened to us. Something happened in the soul of a believer that flipped our life upside down, backwards, which is why when you are living As God has called you to, people don't always understand why. Now look at the solution to the condition of blindness and perishing. In verse 6, Paul says it. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now you see him connecting Genesis with the face of Jesus, and that is important. This is a description of the new birth. Even though the term is not used, the God who created light in the beginning does the same thing in the human heart. Only the light this time is not physical light, but the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. 
Or as verse 4 calls it, the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. It's like one time I was sleeping real good. You know, you know when you fall asleep and you don't mean to fall asleep. Y'all ain't never had that happen to y'all. And you wake up and you don't know where you had. <laughs> Slob coming all down the cheek here. You know, you, what's going on? You know, one of those. I'll have one of those moments, all right? Don't judge me. <laughs> Fell asleep on the couch in the living room, y'all. Slob just coming down. I'm sleeping good. It's, it was real good. I'm remembering it right now in this moment. Sleeping real good. I'm sleeping good, y'all. And, uh, and Lila, my four-year-old, she's, she's five now. She was four at the time. Y'all ain't going to believe this. She comes in the room, and she opens up the blind in the living room where I'm sleeping. When that light came into the room, and it hit my eye, it woke me up. And what I'm trying to tell you all is when the gospel is proclaimed, God causes a light to hit the eye of the sleeping person. And if you know the gospel like I know the gospel, it will wake you up out of your sleep. I wish I had just the two saints in the room that's been woken up by the gospel. You were living in darkness. You were doing your thing. You were in your own mess. And one day the gospel came. The light hit your soul. And out you came alive and well. God did a Lazarus come forth on you. In other words, God brings about the new birth through the proclamation of the gospel. The good news, the good news, the good news, the good news that God sent his son into the world to live a perfect life, to die for sinners, absorb the wrath of God, take away the guilt, provide the gift of righteousness to you, an imputed righteousness that you did not earn. He clothes you in white. He throws away your record. He drops your charges. You have no time to serve anymore. He says that you are justified. He gives you eternal joy through faith alone, apart from the works of the law. That's the good news of the gospel. And when broken, messed up people hear it, they say, I need that right there. And God say, come here, baby. I'll love you just the way you are. I'll wash you up just the way you are. We talked about this last week. Remember Matthew, the tax collector, that Jesus stepped into his world, told him to follow him. And I told y'all that tax collectors were so jacked up and so messed up that the Bible put tax collectors in their own category so that when you read your Bible, that's why it says tax collectors and sinners because these jokers over here ain't never gonna see God. But what we found out last week is that God wants to save jokers like tax collectors and what should have happened when I said that is you should have got on your feet and started jumping and started shouting because you should say I know that I'm somewhat like a tax collector and I'm so glad that God comes where I am open the blinds Lila 
and let the light come in. He causes the human heart to see the truth, the beauty, and the worth of Christ, the glory of Christ. And when we see him for who he really is, we receive him for who he is. The book of John says, and as and to as many as received him, he gave power to become the children of God. As many as received him, help me, Holy Spirit, as to as many as received him, he gave the power to become the children of God. Pop quiz time. Who is the church class? Is it A, a brand? B, Tupac? C, y'all say, why Tupac keep making it? Well, it was all a dream. I used to read, never mind. Uh, I used to read the scriptures. That's what I was going to say. Is it A, a brand, B, Tupac, C, brick and mortar building, or D, the citizens of God's kingdom and the children of God's family? It is D, the citizens of God's kingdom and the children of God's family. And how did we become his children and citizens? He not only died for us, but he woke us up with his marvelous light. And we are literally saved and resurrected because of an act of generosity. Now I'm going to press in now. God emptied himself to bring you life. He emptied himself in order to bring you life. Now keep that in mind and let me work. God, in an act of selflessness, saved you and loved you. And what I deduce from that is a church full of people who claim they were saved by a selfless act that they didn't earn should be the least selfish people in the world. Why then are we building so many selfish churches? Churches that are pursuing expansion and influence and power more than blind people are. The church should be the least narcissistic place, people, and institution if it truly beholds the glory of God. And I don't think the church will be any good to the world if it is a narcissistic one. Because narcissism is antithetical to the gospel. And how do we help a dying world? I believe, by becoming a selfless church. What do you mean, Pastor? People who don't believe in Christ are blind. We just read it. But I believe the way we help people to see is by being anti-narcissistic. And how do we do that? Being a church that proclaims him through a life of love and service. Being a church that proclaims Christ through the life of love and service. 
You're still not with me. I'm going to help you catch up in a minute. Again, pastor, you're going to have to give us something more practical. You know how we are. I do. Okay, cool. Look at the verse. What we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord with ourselves as your servant for Jesus' sake. Watch what Paul is doing here. Paul wrote what to proclaim Christ from a heart of love and a life of service. In other words, they both proclaim the Jesus, Paul and the other apostles both proclaim Jesus through speech, and they also took on the humility of Jesus in their living. And so what we get is a preaching of the cross and a kind of, and a kind of life that is shaped like the cross. Basically, God is calling us to die to ourselves so that others might live. Okay. Okay. I know in America you're used to um, coming to church and hearing how God's going to give you a BMW and, and, and extend the square footage of your home um, and nothing bad is going to come your way. Um, and if you sow the right seed... Um, that, that, that God is going to make you a millionaire. I know that you're used to, to hearing that. But when you read the scriptures, that's not what we're to sell you. Now, I'm not saying that God can't bless you and give you a BMW. And I ain't saying give me one neither. I'm just saying. I'm, that's not what I'm saying. That's not what I'm not. That's your interpretation. That's on you. But that's not what I'm saying. Okay. Or if, like, Stone want to give me his Cadillac, that's on him. That ain't on me, you know. But basically, God is calling us to die to ourselves so others might live. And this is what Paul is doing for the church of Corinth. He is dying to himself that they may live. We are to use our lives to give little images of the cross. In other words, when we look at the cross, we see a God giving up everything, a God dying a God serving so that you might live. Another example is Harriet Tubman. She gets free, but she then uses her freedom to free others. She gets free, she turns around, she uses that freedom in order that others may get free. She risks it all so that others might experience freedom. When we when we make up a story of real-life sacrifices in the name of Jesus, those stories become like Lila to a sleeping world. When we serve people, we become like little Lilas to a sleeping world. We are pulling back the blinds that Satan is pulling over their eyes. And I promise you, if we move in this way, people will get saved. <clears throat> Okay, if we stop, if we stop being comfortable with the church, the institutional church, doing church for us, and start being the church, people are going to get saved. The power is not in bigger buildings and better paint, more comfortable chairs, better coffee. All right? I'm not against any of those things, but that's not where the power is. It's not in that. 
The power is in the children of God's family and the citizens of his kingdom giving themselves to a dying world so that the dying world may live. Okay, you don't believe me. Here it is. I brought some help. Come here, Acts. Come here. Watch this. I brought it. I just knew that y'all might not believe me. But here it is. Acts. Here it is. I'm not lying. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching in the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. Now, this is a descriptive text. This is not like a one event. Luke is kind of summarizing some of the things that were happening in the early church. And he says, I came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Now, right there, I'm astonished already. People are getting together. They're excited about reading God's word. They're excited about prayer, right? They're gathering. They're listening to the apostles' teaching. And then it says, uh, many wonders and signs were being done. That right there is enough for me to say, oh, we, God, I want to see that happen in our church. I want to see. I want to see some healing happen. Yeah, Lord, I want to see some of that. I want to see, see blind eyes open. I want to see that. I want to see... I want to see deaf ears open. I want to see all that. But that ain't what really got me. The next part of the verse that got me, and the reason why it got me, because if you know folks like I know folks, you know this ain't nothing short of a miracle. And we wouldn't put this in the miracle category, but I'm putting it in the miracle category. Read it for yourself. Here it is. And all who believe were together and had all things in common. There's a miracle right there. Y'all know good and well how hard that statement right there is. Gets even better though. <laughs> Here it is. Watch this. I know it's God. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Okay, y'all don't know people like we don't like sharing our stuff. Is it just me? Like, 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 we don't like giving up stuff for the sake of other people, especially here in America. It's bigger everything, more of everything. These people are selling their stuff to help other people. If that ain't a miracle, I don't know what is. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, and they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people in the Lord. Now watch this. In the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Something explosive happens when we behold God Beholding, understanding Christ, seeing Christ, loving Christ, knowing Christ, something happens to the heart. God does something. He awakens us to him. And when we behold him, we start to act like him because we are being transformed into his image. And what that looks like is Acts chapter 2. People who are generous, 
people who share and people who give for the sake of other image bearers. And one of the key ingredients to people getting saved in Acts 2 was not only were they proclaiming Christ in word, but they were living like Christ. And they were sharing, sort of like Paul describes in Philippians 2, taking on his humility. When the church is willing to put her life, her brand, and her services on the line, when the church is willing to say, my life for yours, not my life for me, or my life for me and my brand, but my life for yours, that is the essence of sacrifice. And what God allows is for us, and let me pause, to say this dying to ourself is not so that we can be saved. We do it because we are saved. That the essence, it is the essence of sacrifice. And what God allows is for us in the world to experience resurrection power. He allows us to experience resurrection power. In order to experience resurrection power, some, got, some has to die first. Nothing gets resurrected without dying firsthand. We couldn't get up until God got up. But when he got up, we got up. And we wonder why the earlier church was experiencing so much resurrection power because they were dying to themselves. And they were striving to not be a selfish church. Long before the celebrity pastor and smoke machines, one writer says, and coffee bars and cool branding, the church was a family that loved and cared for each other. And Bethel Gary, can we be that kind of church? Can we, can we care for each other? No, like seriously care for one another. Not just get in and get our Sunday fix. Can we truly slow down enough to care for each other? Can we love this Gary community like Christ loved us? These things are easier heard than lived out. But perhaps in this moment, in 2022, in September, your soul says, yes, I want that. I want the kingdom of God to come through my life. And I want to experience his resurrection in my life. And I want to give you who said yes, I want to give you a few ways in which you can do this, or at least start. Let this list be known that it is not an exhaustive list. It is not all that you can do, because I believe if we quiet our souls long enough, God is already calling you to do something in the world that you live in every day. But all that I want to be as your pastor in your church 
is to give you little examples of what you can do. But I don't want you limited to what's coming out of my brain. Because you have the privilege and opportunity to have your own relationship with God as well. So, next week, what we're going to do is we will have a list of needs in our church. You or a group of you, if you so choose to do so, will have an opportunity to meet that need. There will be a fake tree in the commons made up of needs. You will be able to grab that need and you'll be able to meet that need if you feel so that God is leading you to do so. Number two, I want to encourage you to join a G3 because these groups will be the vehicle which we use to reach Gary, Indiana. There are some developing thoughts on what we'll do as we become a new church on how we're going to love, if I can say it this way, the heck out of this community. And we're going to pray that as we do, resurrection starts happening all over the place. Then the last one, this is easier heard than to actually do it. September 17th is coming. And we're going to partner with the city and we're going to help clean. Stone is going to be our boss that day. He's made that clear. (laughs) Now listen, I realize in a room full of people that many of us have legitimate reasons why we can't be there and there will be no shaming. But if it's just because you want to watch Netflix, I'm going to ask that you die to yourself and show up. September 17th here at this campus at 7.30. And, I mean, for goodness gracious, forgive me a Chick-fil-A. We just make ministry so cushy in America. Give them Chick-fil-A there, show up. Uh, I'm laughing but irritated at the same time. We'll also, uh, hopefully next week, um, have a list of equipment that we need in order to accomplish this. And I want to close with this inspiring story that happened in Chicago. There's a cool story you should look into that reminds us about the power of sharing. The story is Gary Comer. Over 20 years ago, Lands End founder Gary Comer embarked on a wildly ambitious project to improve the struggling side, the South Side neighborhood where he grew up. And I'm reading an article, by the way. These are not my words. On a mild September day in 1999, Gary Comer drove from his, old, from his Gold Coast apartment to a neighborhood in Chicago, far south side, known as Pocket Town. It's a small triangular pocket of greater grand crossing borders by Oakwood Cemetery to the north, the Norfolk Southern tracks to the west, and the Metra tracks to the east. Like many parts of the south side, Pocket Town had become overrun with drug dealers, gang violence in the 1970s. 
Block after block was blighted. The local schools were failing. 15% of residents lived below the poverty line and unemployment topped 25%. Comer, a 70-year-old in khakis in a crew neck sweater, interesting guy, isn't he? Got out of his car and walked into the two-story red brick Paul Revere Elementary School. This little guy who barely reached my shoulders came up to me and tapped me, recalled Shelby Taylor, the principal at the time, a tall man with a deep voice, and he asked to take a tour of the school. Days later, Coma wrote a check for 68000 to fix an, elect an electrical problem in the aging building that prevented computers from being used in the computer lab. A grateful Taylor asked Comer what he could do for him in return. Comer responded, well, Shelby, I would like a good soul food lunch. Amen. Praise the Lord. Somebody. I just stopped right there. I just stopped right there. Over greens and grits and cornbread, my, my, my. Comer told him, I will use all my resources to help turn Revere around. Dumbstruck, Taylor learned that the unassuming senior citizen was a billionaire founder of the mail-order clothing empire Lands Inn. Comer had graduated from, from Revere more than a half a century before, and it turned out that helping the school was only the beginning. Comer soon, soon resolved to do no less than transform the lives of the families and young Pickett young people of Pocket Town, and he built this facility. The plan he eventually hit upon was to address the interconnected problems facing Pocket Town residents, poorly performing schools, as well as issues like standard, substandard housing and inadequate health care. Giving his age, Comer knew he would unlikely live to see Pocket Town completely uh, resurrected. Indeed, he died of prostate cancer in 2006. Through the Comer Science and Education Foundation, which he set up in 1998, now run by his son, Guy, 42, he made sure the money would keep flowing. Gary told me that even though he'll be gone, he would take care of the neighborhood. Taylor says, so far, some 86 million, and this article was written a few years ago, 86 million of Comer's money has been plowed into Pocket Town. That's a fair amount of money for a small neighborhood, says Robert Sampson, a Harvard psychologist, one of the country's foremost experts on neighborhood revitalization. It works out to about 43,000 for each of the area's 2,000 or so men, women, and children. This article went on to say, coma prep and shaping up to be an academic success. Over the past three years, the average ACT score for its students had jumped from 13.7 out of 36 to 20.1, the third highest improvement among CPS high schools. And Comer is on a track to graduate 85% of its students, according to CPS. Last spring, every one of Comer's 127 seniors, once again, this article was written a few years ago, 127 seniors went to college. And I share that story with you to say, look what happens when one person decides to share. Of course, he was a billionaire, too. I mean, we don't want to. <laughs> we, 
We don't, we don't want to forget about that. He was, he, yeah, he's a billionaire. But imagine what could happen. Because society needs more than money, y'all. I'm not arguing that money is the solution. What I'm arguing is that sharing our lives is the solution. And if money happens to be part of it, so let it be. But imagine what could happen if all the churches in northwest Indiana pulled together. What could happen if Flourish Church gave ourselves in this next church to more than Sunday mornings and great worship services? What could happen if we take the form of a servant in Gary, Indiana? Listen, I don't know what God will do, but I know that God will do what only God can do, and that is raise up dead people. So as we prepare to leave this place, may you leave with a posture of prayer. I pray that you leave challenged. I pray that you leave wrestling. I pray that you would take this salvation that God has given you and do not waste it on yourself. To take this life that God has now given you plant it back into his kingdom. Let him multiply it. And children of God, when he returns, we stand before him in his glory and in his majesty. And we see him as he is. May he look at you and say, job well done, my good and faithful servant.